This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie Anderson. Irrawan by Samuel Butler. Chapter 2 In the Wool Shed. At last, shearing came, and with the shearers there was an old native, whom they had nicknamed Chowbok, though I believe his real name was Kahabuka. He was a sort of chief of the natives, could speak a little English, and was a great favorite with the missionaries. He did not do any regular work with the shearers, but pretended to help in the yards, his real aim being to get the grog, which is always more freely circulated at shearing time. He did not get much, for he was apt to be dangerous when drunk, and very little would make him so, still he did get it occasionally, and if one wanted to get anything out of him, it was the best bribe to offer him. I resolved to question him and get as much information from him as I could. I did so. As long as I kept to questions about the nearer ranges, he was easy to get on with. He had never been there, but there were traditions among his tribe to the effect that there was no sheep country, nothing, in fact, but stunted timber and a few riverbed flats. It was very difficult to reach. Still there were passes, one of them up our own river, though not directly along the riverbed, the gorge of which was not practicable. He had never seen any one who had been there. Was there to not enough on this side? But when I came to the main range his manner changed at once. He became uneasy, and began to prevaricate and shuffle. In a very few moments I could see that of this too there existed traditions in his tribe, but no efforts, or coaxing, could get a word from him about them. At last I hinted about Grog, and presently he feigned to consent. I gave it to him. But as soon as he had drunk it, he began shamming intoxication, and then went to sleep, or pretended to do so, letting me kick him pretty hard and never budging. I was angry, for I had to go without my own grog, and had got nothing out of him. So the next day I determined that he should tell me before I gave him any, or get none at all. Accordingly, when night came, and the shearers had knocked off work and had their supper, I got my share of rum in a tin pannikin, and made a sign to Chowbok to follow me to the wool-shed which he willingly did, slipping out after me, and no one taking notice of either of us. When we got down to the wool-shed we lit a tallow candle, and having stuck it into an old bottle, we sat down upon the wool-bales and began to smoke. A wool-shed is a roomy place, built somewhat on the same plan as a cathedral, with aisles on either side full of pens for the sheep, a great nave, at the upper end of which the shearers work, and a further space for wool-sorters and packers. It always refreshed me with a semblance of antiquity, precious in a new country, though I very well knew that the oldest wool-shed in the settlement was not more than seven years old, while this was only two. Chowbok pretended to expect his grog at once, though both of us knew very well what the other was after, and that we were each playing against the other, the one for grog and the other for information. We had a hard fight for more than two hours. He had tried to put me off with lies, but had carried no conviction. During the whole time we had been morally wrestling with one another, and had neither of us apparently gained the least advantage. At length, however, I had become sure that he would give in ultimately, and that with a little further patience I should get his story out of him. As upon a cold day in winter, when one has churned, as I had often to do, and churned in vain, and the butter makes no sign of coming, at last one tells by the sound that the cream has gone to sleep, and then upon a sudden the butter comes, so I had churned at Chowbok until I perceived that he had arrived as it were, at the sleepy stage, and that with a continuance of steady, quiet pressure the day was mine. 
On a sudden, without a word of warning, he rolled two bales of wool—his strength was very great—into the middle of the floor, and on the top of these he placed another crosswise. He snatched up an empty wool-pack, threw it like a mantle over his shoulders, jumped upon the uppermost bale, and sat upon it. In a moment his whole form was changed. His high shoulders dropped, he set his feet close together, heel to heel and toe to toe. He laid his arms and hands close alongside of his body, the palms following the thighs. He held his head high but quite straight, and his eyes stared right in front of him. But he frowned horribly, and assumed an expression of face that was positively fiendish. At the best times Chabok was very ugly, but he now exceeded all conceivable limits of the hideous. His mouth extended almost from ear to ear, grinning horribly and showing all his teeth. His eyes glared, though they remained quite fixed, and his forehead was contracted with a most malvolent scowl. I am afraid my description will have conveyed only the ridiculous side of his appearance, but the ridiculous and the sublime are near, and the grotesque fiendishness of Chowbok's face approached this last if it did not reach it. I tried to be amused, but I felt a sort of creeping at the roots of my hair and over my whole body, as I looked and wondered what he could possibly be intending to signify. He continued thus for about a minute, sitting bolt upright, as stiff as a stone, and making this fearful face. Then there came from his lips a low moaning like the wind, rising and falling by infinitely small gradations, till it became almost a shriek, from which it descended and died away. After that he jumped down from the bale, and held up the extended fingers of both his hands, as one who should say ten, though I did not then understand him. For myself I was open-mouthed with astonishment. Chowbok rolled the bales rapidly into their place, and stood before me, shuddering, as in great fear. Horror was written upon his face, this time quite involuntarily, as though the natural panic of one who had committed an awful crime against unknown and superhuman agencies. He nodded his head and gibbered, and pointed repeatedly to the mountains. He would not touch the grog, but after a few seconds he made a run through the wool-shed door into the moonlight, nor did he reappear till next day at dinner-time, when he turned up looking very sheepish and abject in his civility towards myself. Of his meaning I had no conception. How could I? All I could feel sure of was that he had a meaning which was true and awful to himself. It was enough for me that I believed him to have given me the best he had and all he had. This kindled my imagination more than if he had told me intelligible stories by the hour together. I knew not what the great snowy ranges might conceal, but I could no longer doubt that it would be something well worth discovering. I kept aloof from Chowbok for the next few days, and showed no desire to question him further. When I spoke to him I called him Kahabuka, which gratified him greatly. He seemed to have become afraid of me, and acted as one who was in my power. Having therefore made up my mind that I would begin exploring as soon as shearing was over, I thought it would be a good thing to take Chowbok with me. So I told him that I meant going to the nearer ranges for a few days prospecting, and that he was to come too. I made him promises of nightly grog, and held out the chances of finding gold. I said nothing about the main range, for I knew it would frighten him. I would get him as far up our own river as I could, and trace it, if possible, to its source. I would then either go on by myself, if I felt my courage equal to the attempt, or return with Chowbok. So, as soon as ever shearing was over, and the wool sent off, I asked leave of absence and obtained it. Also I bought an old pack-horse and pack-saddle, so that I might take plenty of provisions and blankets and a small tent. I was to ride and find fords over the river. Chabak was to follow and lead the pack-horse, which would also carry him over the fords. 
My master let me have tea and sugar, ship's biscuits, tobacco, and salt mutton, with two or three good bottles of brandy, for, as the wool was now sent down, abundance of provisions would come up with the empty drays. Everything being now ready, all the hands on the station turned out to see us off, and we started our journey not very long after the summer solstice of 1870. End of chapter 2